In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. <sighs> we made it. I feel so relieved. We are at the end of season two? We are. Wow. Wow. I can't even believe it. I, I keep forgetting this is the last episode of the season. I'm like, okay, next week we'll just be back in Law and Order world again. Same, same <laughs> shit. <laughs> Wild. Who knows where next season will take us? I know. I'm pretty sure you said this is Soretta's last season, right? Or only I season? I thought so, but I think you're right. they didn't write his character off. Yeah, but they didn't do that for um, Grievy. Grievy the first season either until... That's true. Well, I'm N, that's Matt. <laughs> Welcome to Rip from the Headlines. <laughs> I pulled it up and I'm like, oh wait, it's just that. <laughs> well, I have two exciting pieces of information. I'm ready. So one is just a random thing and one's actually a recommendation. So the first thing is, do you remember Rodney Alcala? Is that the dating game? That is the dating Killer game murderer yeah. guy. He died last week. <gasps> Wow. So he's okay. gone. Goodbye. Yeah. My other thing is I started watching a show. It's been out for years, so uh, it, this is not like a new show to recommend, but I started watching Good Girls. Have you ever watched it? Not yet, but I really, really want to. It's I'm probably just like you. I've had it on a list and oh yeah, 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 yeah. And then no. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it has like three of my favorite actresses. It has Retta, Christina Hendricks, and Mae Whitman. Uh-huh. And they're all phenomenal. It's a great show. It I will say, like, the premise is they are... They're like they con like, artists, right? Or, like, scammers? Yeah, yeah, kind of. They, like, rob a bank to, you know, pay for their bills. One of their daughters has, like, kidney failure. So there's, like... It's kind of in the vein of Breaking Bad thematically. Mm -hmm. But Good Girls definitely doesn't nearly have the edge that breaking bad did sure i mean like it's 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 much uh much tamer and i think sometimes it can't decide if it's like a comedy show or like a drama and that's fine like they mix it all pretty well together but there are a few moments where i feel like the show wasn't sure what it's doing but overall i've really enjoyed it oh okay i oh i got davy to finally watch the center Ooh, good. So now he's caught up with me, and now we're both watching season three together. So we're about halfway through season three. And how? Okay, halfway. So Ooh. what are your what are your feelings so far? I love I love this series in general. I've I'm so like insanely impressed with the acting and the staging so and all of it. It's just so good. It's yeah, so it's really really good. It's like acting on like a micro level like it's so mm -hmm. new like bill pullman's character is just so real and like fully realized in every little movement he does and how he reacts to things i'm yes. just like in love with it but yeah that's that's all i got i just read on reddit that the new episode of to live and die in la episode nine comes out today oh. i think or maybe this week so it should be coming out shortly. I can't wait. I am. I literally check every week to see if that's updated. All right. Should we get into the episode? Yes. But before we do, I have my hot takes from last week. 
Oh, that's right. Okay, okay, okay. Tell me everything. So now I've watched last week's episode, episode 21, Silence. (laughs) And here are my notes I took when I was watching it. Okay. First note, Soretta in his David the Gnome outfit, as you call it. (laughs) If you mute the scenes of him and play Once Upon a December from Anastasia, the animated (laughs) film, it fits. I've never seen Anastasia, unfortunately. (gasps) Oh my God. Well, you know, it's Russian anastasia in the snow yes so you get the you get the reference (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. it all it all connects up second thought okay the me's hair that you mentioned in the episode the wild mane that she had yes yes it is a mix of lion o from thundercats meets everyone from cats the musical (laughs) it's so wild Um, did you put her in our fashion court Oh yeah. Also, <sighs> my a gripe from the episode. Okay. Every time anyone talked about anything gay, anything intimate about being gay or guys being together, they did uh-huh. it like out of the side of their mouths and like through like <clears throat> throat clearing. Like it was the, <laughs> the most uncomfortable thing. Like, did your son have any friends that were <laughs> intimate? You know, yeah. <laughs> I was like, goodbye. So pathetic. It was um, not a great episode. Mm-hmm. No. And my last note. The pumpkin girl. The girl dressed as a pumpkin. Yes. It's a great pumpkin, Charlie Brown. Yes. <laughs> she is 100% out of the school of Marissa Tomei and my cousin Vinny. Mm, yes, she really is. And I, she I really, loved really it. Is. <laughs> Those are my thoughts. Well, great. I'm glad that you had a chance to catch up. Oh, boy. So was I. I almost pulled a U and almost forgot to watch this week's episode. See? It happens. It does happen. (laughs) It does. It's more understandable now. Well, are we ready for this week's episode? Let's do it. Okay. This is season two, episode 22, which is both our season finale and the season finale of Law & Order season two. It's titled The Working Stiff. And it's... Uh, double meaning. Finally, mm-hmm. they're get, they're trying to be clever again. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's not only like, you know, working stiff, underpaid worker type. It's, you know, rigor Someone's mortis, dead. you know? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so we start out with a custodian cleaning an office building, and it's 5.42 a.m., and he finds a Mr. McFadden, as he calls him, shot in the head at his desk. Yeah, that's a big cleaning job outside your pay grade, sir. Fully outside your pay grade. (laughs) In the next scene, police are there on the scene. And somehow, despite finding the body and calling police and all that, they let the entire staff of like 900 people in. (laughs) Like they're all just in the crime scene standing around at a distance. It's, It's like 60 people, but it's like a it's such a packed house. Also, did you notice that? Every single man was wearing literally the same shirt. I, I wouldn't. That doesn't surprise me one bit because like, it was like it was like a cult where everybody was wearing the same <laughs> like pale French blue button up. They were all going to like descend upon the streets and like hand out flyers afterwards. Fully. Uh, they find out that there's no security on the pr- uh, premises, no camera, no guards. And the boss says that McFadden was a respected guy because he had come from nothing and built himself up. And he says that, quote, this is a terrible moment for our company. And I thought, that is so retail, your boss, finding you dead and thinking, oh, man, how am I going to get your shift covered? That is (laughs) 
hello starbucks yeah <laughs> like if you called out of starbucks and said you were in the hospital they would probably be like which one and they'd call your doctor and be like hi uh can he do mobile orders can you do mobile <laughs> orders from the bed please because we have a frappuccino happy hour coming up and it's real cereals <laughs> or you're like i'm bleeding from the skull and they're like well did you call someone else to get your shift covered <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. I could have like fallen to my death at work and they would have been like, he better finish his shift because <laughs> I, I'm not filing any of that paperwork. Oh, so that, that's the reaction of, uh, of this boss too. And the phones start ringing soon afterwards and it's like a stock place. So it's the usual like 90s buy, sell, buy, sell, Wall Street yeah. nonsense, <laughs> craziness. In the buy back. low, sell high, bulls, <laughs> bears. Wolf of Wall Street. (laughs) (laughs) And then we get the title sequence. So I figured I had a moment. And Uh I decided to play Super Mario Bros. 2. Mm. And I was able to beat the game as Luigi and Peach. And I started as Toad. But then the credits, you know, credits came back. So I was like, okay, got to get back to the show. (laughs) Got it. So, but does anyone ever pick Mario? In Super Mario uh, Brothers no, 2. No, he's so boring and average. Like, why? <laughs> I never, I never ever choose him when I've got choices of other characters. I know. So, the victim, his name is Marshall McFadden. He was a mergers and acquisitions expert on this, like, firm. And they call him a Wall Street Tiger. The bullet they'll find out from ballistics matches the gun that they find on the scene. And the gun is just in the garbage. It has no prints. The serial number has been filed off. They're picking up with their bare hands. Did they pick it up with a pen or a pencil? No. I really looked hard for pens and pencils in this. But they just use their bare effing hands. (laughs) Do you think that we missed one at some point during the season? It's possible. But the only way you're getting that point is if you go back through and find it. <laughs> I am not going to rewatch an entire season. Well, of then Law you better accept defeat. <laughs> I fully yes, that is worth the lose. But I think it's I I wouldn't call it a lose. I would call it a like near miss. I think I got silver if we're doing Olympics. Oh, for sure, you got literally ninety like eight percent. So they question a bunch of people and they find out that at least eighty people lost their jobs from Ms. McFadden's last takeover. And Logan and Sarada figure that these people are probably upset, so they decide to talk to some of these ex-employees. And they find one of the white-collar guys. This episode makes a big point of, like, white-collar versus blue-collar. So Logan and Sarada find out from this white-collar guy that not everyone who got fired was so upset. He seems to be doing just fine. And he's like, plus, we all, everyone on the board who got fired got $7 million golden parachutes. Because people talk Imagine. Like this. I know, right? Like, oh yeah, you, you're going to get fired. You're $7 million. Is that okay? I'd be like, fire me daddy. Today. <laughs> so back on the street, the Logan and Sarada are eating hot dogs and chatting. <laughs> they decide, let's go see what's happening with some of the blue collar workers who got fired. They're probably not as thrilled. But they take a long time to do so. They First, they go back to the station and they go through all this paperwork that they've confiscated from McFadden's office. They made a big to-do there. The boss didn't want them going through stuff. He was like a human Zazu flying around saying, like, you can't touch anything. But they're like, (laughs) I was like, who does he remind me of? (laughs) That was totally it. And they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just going to take everything. Logan finds a letter from the union signed by an Edward Palmieri agreeing to lower the salaries of their new acquisition by 15%. And they're like, that's a weird thing to do. Right. And then Logan goes into like a weird fugue state and is like, Palmieri, 
Oh, <laughs> that was a weird moment. Oh, man. It's so weird. But they find out that they also have a check for $100,000 to Palmieri from the Ann McFadden Cancer Research Fund. And they're like, oh, that's suspicious. So they talk to Cragen, and he is like, that's a weird con. If this is all connected, why would Palmieri kill McFadden if he was making so much money from him? So it doesn't make any sense. But they think maybe there's some sort of history there, so... Mm-hmm. And Palmieri and his lawyer are very, like, laissez-faire about everything. They say, you know, oh, the deal was good. The money was fine. Everybody was happy with it. You know, if anything, I got screwed over by McFadden. And Logan's mm-hmm. like, um, you got $100,000, it looks like. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and his lawyer, like, keeps whispering in his ear. And he's like, that was for consulting. I would like $100,000 for consulting. Same. So I'd like a, I would like $1,000 <laughs> right now, Sounds please. Also same. <laughs> so he's insulted by the implication that he's even involved. But Cragen gets him to tell them, like, what he thinks happened. And he's like, well, maybe it was one of the, like, working class individuals who, you know, lost everything. And he gives four names, among them only one of the matters. And that is for Mr. Villanis. They head to the meeting of this, like, American industrial workers thing that Palmieri's affiliated with, and they walk in the room, and there's a meeting going on because it seems that this union or whatever has taken pension plans away from workers, and the workers have, you know, been paying into these for up to 40 years, some of them. Right. So first of all, the man that gets up is, like, fully auditioning for the role of Bernie Sanders. Oh, yes. Very much. Uh, Bernie Sanders playing um, <laughs> Norma Ray. Norma Ray. <laughs> Bernie Sanders yes. as Norma Ray. Yes. So he says things like, you know, the money that they bought paid for the suits of the executives and they've made false promises to them. Simon Villanis is this gentleman and that is one of the guys that was suggested before by Palmieri. And so they decide to take Bernie Sanders, Simon Villanis outside and talk to him. He says that McFadden had taken pension contributions and invested them into these garbage bonds. And they're like, okay, so were you involved? And he's like, laugh. he starts laughing into like a hacking fit. And he's like, no, I wasn't even around that night. I was either drinking at a bar or I was at the clinic. Um, and then they kind of like let it go. They don't talk about it anymore. They don't pry for no reason. Yeah. Strange. Yeah. This part is all about money and, like, bonds and stocks, so it kind of loses me a little bit, but I'll do my best. Okay, so they're walking with Valanis, and he shows them these apartments in Brooklyn, and he's like, oh, here we are. And he says that he had a 99-year lease at this apartment at a time back in the day, and it was $150 a month, and that was the deal for the entirety of the lease. Um, But McFadden had bought it out. And he found $120 million in hidden assets. And he ended up closing down a business that... This part is kind of strange. Like, (laughs) So Volanis lost his housing because of McFadden closing down a business that he worked at, I guess. And because of that, anybody who lived in any kind of rent-controlled situation lost their housing deal. Because maybe their housing deal was through their job? I don't really understand how that's, that's connected. Ki- yeah, that's kind of how I understood it too. But I feel like whenever Law & Order tries to do like convoluted, convoluted financial storylines, it's always like, huh? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's kind of the deal. He lost his job, and because of that, lost his housing at this very rent-controlled place, and that, like, you know, effed up his life, because you're never going to find something that is that deal again. $150 a month in New York. God, imagine. I don't even care if it's a a, a hole. Literally. I literally think you couldn't rent a cardboard box (laughs) on the street for $150 a month in New York. No way. So he had gotten forced out of this apartment complex. It got turned into luxury apartments and, you know, so on and so forth. So they just had to go visit this mystery clinic. And the doctor there is wearing a scrunchie that mm, could be a full-size black garbage bag just scrunched up on her head. It was like 45 scrunchies in a row. It was so big and and crunched up and black. I was like, is that a piece of trash? What is that? It looked like a, you know, in kids' shows where things like caterpillars are human-sized or, like, really big. It's like that turned into a scrunchie. It's totally true. So she tells them that he had been having chemotherapy there because he has a tumor and he has lung cancer. But he's actually running out of money. And so in any event, he had left the clinic on that day in question around 1230. And so McFadden was killed around 5. They think that could be enough time, technically. Back at the station, Cragen doesn't think that Volanis is all clean. He thinks, like, maybe he's got something to do with it. He has an assault charge <laughs> against him, and it's against McFadden for throwing an egg at him. An egg. An egg. And he, he filed charges against him. Goodbye. I mean... Happy Halloween. <laughs> so, and then Logan goes, what, McFadden died of eggshells on the brain? So they tracked down an old weapons charge against him from like four years ago just to humor the idea, but they find out that it was it was nothing. But they're able to get the serial number from that gun regardless, and they go talk to Valanis about it, who's very satisfied about the egg story. And he's having a cigarette and hacking up a lung, and they're like, what are you doing? But he's like, you know, it's not the cigarettes, it was the air in the plant, and I had a lawyer a while back for it. He took a check from me, and then he's like, nope. Never mind. And then he just disappeared. So, you know, I got screwed over then, too. He says that his gun's been missing since Thursday. And then they're like, all right, well, let's see. So they do, like, a lineup of guns in front of him. They just have guns in a paper bag, not in (laughs) evidence bags, nothing. Just, like, loose guns just sitting on the table. Um, And they're all touching them with their hands, including him. And he's like, I think this one's mine, but it just didn't have tape on it. When you, they all look different. They all, all the guns look different. You would know your gun. You but, uh, <laughs> yes, there there was no similarities between these things other than they were all guns. Cor- correct. Yes. So they find out that it doesn't even matter because they were able to have the FBI get the serial number off of the original gun and it matched his from before. So he's arrested and back in the DA's office reviewing the case. Stone and Schiff are on the same page for once. They think it's a slam dunk, but Robinette. It's like, hmm, this is very suspicious. (laughs) And they find out that uh, Valanis wants to represent himself in true, like, older white man, angry at the world fashion. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And they ask him, like, why are you doing this? And he says he wants to get his day in court and expose what McFadden had did to him and, you know, everyone else. And he knows that he's being used as a scapegoat. So this is like his way of maybe like getting out the full story. I don't right. know. It's kind of weird. But for once, the detectives have a little bit of sympathy for the person that they're investigating, it seems. And a bit. it's rubbed off on Robinette, 
who has also looked at this case with like a discerning eye, and he's like, let's figure out who broke into your apartment. Let's go with that. There wasn't any forced entry at any of these times. So they're like, well, it must be someone who can get in. And they talk to the landlord. He says no one was around. That was suspicious. And they start looking more into the lawyer and the case that he had mentioned previously. So they talk to his former lawyer, who is this like sassy, sassy guy. And he just says that Volanis is a loudmouth. He turned over all of his evidence to some guy in the bank fraud division way back when he did what he was supposed to do. Through some investigating, Robinette finds that McFadden was up to no good in the 80s, and there was actually a quite a bit of investigating done on him. Mm-hmm. He would be buying out like failing companies in the 80s. He would run them into the ground, sell them, and then he would take out some sort of... He would get some money out of the deal. Yeah. And then it turns out he was taking workers' pensions, housing, and health funds, and invested them into bad stocks, and then he would sell the company. I don't really understand how any of that works. So, but that's what he was doing. He was taking money from people that didn't belong to him. And he was making a profit, collapsing businesses. Mm -hmm. Tom Girardi, kind (laughs) of. So we find out that McFadden was actually about to be indicted for for fraud before his death. And it all has to do with a bank called the Bank of Five Boroughs, which is a bank I know you would never go to because you would not understand a thing about it. Nope. Too many too many things. Boroughs, cities, counties. <laughs> and Schiff is like, oh, I know the CEO of that bank, Governor uh, Corcoran. But he's like, uh, you know, he's my friend. And he's like, you know what? I'll He begrudgingly agrees to see what he can find out from him since they're old buddies. Meanwhile, um, the DAs follow up with an attorney named William Cousins. And he's surrounded by papers and books that are bound with gold writing on the spines. And so you know he's really important and smart. And busy. Of course. Yeah. Marie Kondo would have had a field day in that office. It was like just <laughs> papers just flying from the ceiling. Cousins says he was going to indict McFadden. Indeed, that was going to happen. Um, but Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> and he gives the name of his staff. And meanwhile, you know, it's a dead end. Schiff has lunch with the former governor, Corcoran. And the conversation starts out with them like, oh, you're great. Oh, I love you. You're the best. Blah, blah. And then eventually he's like, should I know anything about your bank? And he's like, oh, come on. You'd, you'd know if there was anything going on. And, mm-hmm. you know, Schiff is like, hmm, suspicious. <laughs> it's a very suspicious episode. <laughs> Everyone's feeling that way. Yes. It's more and more looking to Stone and Robinette, though, that Corcoran was directly involved with McFadden. So they talk to someone at a firm named Moorhead, and they find out that he was the one who leaked all the information he told people that McFadden was going to be indicted. And he's like, oh, gosh. And he, he says, okay, fine. The bank had $2 million in failed loans, the Bank of Five Boroughs. And he told Corcoran that the bank was being investigated because he wanted him to have a heads up. And Schiff is disappointed but understands that, you know, they have to do what they have to do because Corcoran is involved. But privately, Stone and Robinette urge him to, you know, give the case away. But he's like, no, no, no. I'm impartial, and if we just get him on the counts, then it won't even matter. So they go back and they ask that super of Volanis, because they're like, you are lying. There's some way someone got into this house, and it was either you or someone else. And he's like, okay. And he finally says, fine, fine, I lied. I literally just let somebody in because they had a union button. Um, wow. (laughs) Okay. Into your house. Yeah. Just let someone into someone's house and said, oh, yeah, I guess so. Because he said he was picking something up for him or dropping something else off for him or something 
And they're like, what did he look like? And he said he had black hair and steel-toed cowboy boots. <laughs> I don't think we've seen anyone in cowboy boots so far. Not yet. I don't even think we see this guy's boots either, so we never get that confirmed. I so. Yeah. Volanis says that this guy that has the cowboy boots description sounds like Eddie Palmieri's cousin, Joey. So he's essentially like the muscle in the family. And we meet him, and boy, oh boy, he is just the quintessential New Jersey Italian-American, you know, hey, I'm walking here kind of guy. It's <laughs> like, yeah. And he answers questions only after his lawyer whispers in his ear. And he says, you know, I'm not involved, whatever. And and then Eddie, on in, in another interrogation room, his cousin Eddie says, listen, he's different than me we're not the same and i'm not involved and everything i did financially was all legit so i i'm not really to blame so they look into that and they find out that the ann mcfadden foundation for cancer research and all it did give him these hundred dollar checks um mm-hmm. that he that he claims were for consulting but the person who approved all those checks was corcoran and schiff is like uh and he's disappointed in his friend but he's like okay now he's even more resolute that they have to get him it's unclear of how they got Joey to cooperate because they don't show yeah. it. But literally in the next scene, he's just spilling all the truth, all the tea on, on the stand. Mm-hmm. He admits to the murder. He admits to stealing the gun. And he says that they were using Mr. Valanis as a scapegoat because everyone knew he hated his cousin anyway and he was going to be dying anyway so no one would miss him. Right. Disgusting. He says that he was paid by Eddie and Eddie on the stand says that the check was supposed to pay for his union people for a big banquet, but he was given it by Mr. Corcoran and asked him to take care of McFadden before the indictment. And he states that the money was indeed, again, indeed, to kill McFadden. And Schiff walks out of the courtroom and he's kind of standing around waiting afterwards, like Teresa was waiting for Danielle at the end of <laughs> the, end of the <laughs> posh fashion show. But it's anticlimactic. The guy comes out and he's he actually feels sorry for him. So Schiff right. goes over to his friend being escorted out of the courtroom and he you know, he pulls his his strings to have him go out the back door so that he can avoid the media frenzy. Corcoran like says thank you to him and he says I could use a friend and Schiff says, You always could. That was the problem. Ooh. Ooh Burn. Mic drop. That was actually a pretty good one. That was a good closing line for yeah, sure. That was fine. It's because it was Schiff, who never talks yeah. usually, besides in like yeah. Skeksis screams. Um, <laughs> and that's the end of the episode. <laughs> Great job. Thank you. Well, are you ready for the true crime that inspired this episode? Am I ready? <laughs> oh, you better believe it. <laughs> if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. <laughs> Let's do it. GG Devane. <laughs> Okay. Oh, Chi-Chi. So this story, I want to start with just like a term thing. Mm-hmm. So this story involves a lot of folks from the area of the world that some people refer to as the Middle East. Mm-hmm. But a lot of folks point out that that is like a problematic way to refer to the area. And it also just kind of like makes it sound like every single country is the same over there. Yeah. So some people argue for... The term Swana, which is Southwest Asian, North African region. Others say like Wana, which is meant to just be like West Asian. So FYI, I am going to use Swana as my way to refer to the areas that I'm talking about in this story. 
Okay. Can you say that one more time, the, the two terms for me? Yes. So Swana is Southwest Asian slash North African. Uh-huh. And Wana would just be West African, or sorry, West Asia, North Africa. Oh, okay. Okay. Oh, okay. That's really good to know. Yeah. Okay, so our story begins with a man named Agha Hassan Abedi. And by the way, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to mispronounce some of these names, but I did look them up. I am trying. Okay. <laughs> okay, so Abedi was born on May 14th, 1922 in Lucknow, which is the capital city of the Indian state of Uttar Pradesh. His father was a rent collector who collected rents for the Raja of Mah- Mahmudabad, a uh, prominent and so he the Raja was essentially like a really prominent figure that this guy was co- his his kind of like rent collector in the area, and so he spent a lot of time in the Raja's court. Um, and so there, Abedi was kind of exposed to really significant wealth and the concept that access to it could be had for anyone who managed to make themselves indispensable for the person who controlled the wealth. Mm. And, ha- and how old is this person? At the time? Yeah. When he's exposed um, to this wealth and all that, this idea? This is kind of his like childhood, his ch- early okay. teen years kind of thing. Gotcha. Um, so according to one source that I read, uh, quote, Abedi also learned that the previously immutable laws of the British colonial power could be changed at whim by the new Indian and Pakistani rulers that followed, and that often as not, legal obstacles to any goal could be eliminated if they interfered with the plans of a sufficiently important political figure. So essentially, mm. he, this article is saying that Abedi essentially got exposed to, you know, power and money and showed how, like, laws could kind of be, like, nudged or changed to allow people to do what they want essentially yeah yeah so he graduated from the university of lucknow with a degree in english literature as well as law and in 1947 after pakistan declared itself a sovereign state independent from british rule abedi migrated to the city of karachi which is the largest city in pakistan and There, he began a career in banking working first with a bank named habib bank Okay. So at the time, many countries in the Swana region were undergoing a lot of significant economic and political change because there were a lot of like newly independent countries who had been sort of like freed or uh, gained independence from colonial rule like British and French and blah, blah, blah. Uh-huh. So it was, it was a an area of like developing independence and... Abedi kind of saw this as an opportunity. He was known as being really skillful, really savvy, and a lot of the articles that I read describe him as having really extraordinary charisma. And he was able to secure some really rich clients for the bank that he was working for at the time, Habib Bank. But he was really ambitious, as I said, and didn't feel like working for Habib Bank was kind of, it was too restrictive, essentially. So in 1959, and this is, you know, not not too long after he kind of started in banking, um, he founded the United Bank Limited, or UBL, which would eventually become the second largest bank in Pakistan. Wow. And according to sources, Abedi was seen as like a really influential person in the banking culture of Pakistan. Because, as I said, a lot of developing nations in the area and um, the kind of concept of modern banking hadn't yet, like, 
taken root in a lot of these countries in the Swana region and, and in other developing countries around the world. And so his goal, Abedi's goal, was to bring the concept of modern banking to all of these countries that didn't necessarily have like d- developed banking industries. He's like the real-life Monopoly man. Kind of, yes. <laughs> so while he was president of UBL, Abedi began collaborating with a lot of really prominent politicians, uh, royalty, rich business industry folks, um, including the president of the United Arab Emirates. And the UAE was a super, super rich country uh, because it had discovered a lot of oil reserves. Hmm. So through this connection with the president of the UAE, Abedi was able to extend the operations of uh, UBL, his bank, into other countries, including the UAE and the United Kingdom, Luxembourg, and also kind of expanded it within Pakistan. So it was through this connection with the president of the UAE that Abedi was really able to grow um, his bank, the United Bank Limited, into a lot of areas of the world. Okay. Wow. That's impressive. I know. So from what I can tell, this was kind of around the time where he decided to, it's unclear to me whether he opened a new company or kind of rebranded UBL, but eventually he opened and became the CEO of a bank called BCCI, which was Bank of Credit and Commerce International. Mm -hmm. And that was in 1972. His goal was to create the first multinational bank in the Swana region. And he was able to open the the bank with 25% of the opening capital provided by the Bank of America, which I didn't get into it, but it seems like Bank of America eventually was like, this was a mistake. (laughs) Um, And the other 75% of the capital was loaned by the ruler of the United Arab Emirates. And his name is Sheikh Zayed bin Sultan Al-Nayan. Okay. Very, I mean, you're doing, you're doing it. (laughs) I'm trying. So... According to the Federation of American Scientists, the United Arab Emirates, the and I mentioned the super rich president, the name I just said, um, UAE didn't really exist at the time. And it was Abedi who actually came up with the idea for Nayan to form the United Arab Emirates. So he not only was this like influential banker, but he actually like had influenced the formation of countries. Wow. So... He, he very powerful man. I don't even know how to link together some of my accounts. I can't even like post <laughs> from Instagram to Facebook sometimes, and he's setting up like countries. I mean, there's <laughs> times where we're like trying to set up Patreon, and I'm like, I what is this? What is this button I need to click? <laughs> <sighs> yeah. So okay, so BCCI eventually opened branches in 72 countries, including. Some uh, some regions that had prevented like powerhouse banks like Citicorp and J.P. Morgan from beginning operations, like he was able to get into those regions. And by the way, when I read J.P. Morgan, I <laughs> of course said, "You the don't fam- touch the Morgan." The letters. family, you don't mess with the family. <laughs> <sighs> so BCCI employed over sixteen thousand people and had approximately one point three million investors over those seventy two countries. And Abedi was, and I wrote this in all capitals, connected. There are photos of this guy, like, shaking hands and hanging out with the Pope. 
Oh, okay. Okay, so only four years after it opened, BCCI's assets were recorded as over $1.6 billion, and that was in 1976. Mm. And in 1980, four years later, it had reached $4, million, or $4 billion. Wow. So wow. more than doubled its billions in four years. The second you so, get to, like, like once you hit the $500,000 mark, within reference to anything, to uh-huh. me, it's like... 500,000 to like 4 billion to me is like the same. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, I don't know. I'm sure that $500,000 in real world money probably won't get everyone very far, but no, let me tell you. Wouldn't turn it around. Wouldn't turn it down. Oh my gosh. Yes. That kind of money. Well, just wait until some of these stories I'm going to tell you. Oh my God. So BCCI was growing really rapidly and financial regulators in a few different countries were a little concerned about how quickly they were growing. Um, and kind of like questioned it, like, how are you growing so quickly? But BCCI said that their large growth was really due to all of the investments they were getting from these oil-rich states and also a lot of investments by developing nations. Mm -hmm. But the regulators were kind of, I think, rightfully concerned that a lot of their loan portfolio, a lot of BCCI's loan portfolio, were loaned to areas of the world where, again, like modern banking hadn't really taken root. And so in addition to this, a lot of the areas were Islamic nations or areas. And so according to Islam, from what I couldn't tell, this is an outsider reading into, you know, the scripture of Islam. But Mm -hmm. my understanding is that there is a perception among devout Muslims that Charging interest on loans is a term called riba, which translates to, like, unjust. And so, like, according to devout followers of Islam, charging anybody interest on a loan is, like, not appropriate. It's unjust. It's not how you should do things. And so the fact that BCCI had so many investors who were devout Muslims who didn't believe in this concept of paying interest kind of concerned these federal federal regulators because they're like uh that's how banks make money kind of so they're kind concerned of a, that they're not going to get they're not going to get that interest because yes the people who they're who are going to be charged it don't believe in it and it'll go against their faith to pay it exactly got yes, it okay exactly in 1975 BCCI attempted to acquire a bank in New York. And to acquire this bank, they tried to use a front man who essentially they like had him pose as the person who was trying to buy this bank. But it became pretty obvious to regulators that it was actually BCCI who was trying to buy their way into American banking. Mm. And so that acquisition fell through. But in 1978, BCCI did acquire the National Bank of Georgia. And a month later, they attempted a hostile takeover of financial general bank shares of Washington. And I'm not quite clear on what a hostile takeover entails, Mm -hmm. but it sounds like something that can happen and is legal at times. But this one, for some reason, resulted in lawsuits alleging that this attempted takeover was illegal. I mean, I guess hostile takeover, just the terminology implies (laughs) that it's, you know, it's not great and not everyone's into it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So that same month, an officer in the office of the Comptroller of Currency in in the United States submitted a report on BCCI that characterized it as a bank dangerously out of control. 
The United States felt that BCCI's operations lacked sufficient oversight, and their reputation was kind of getting rather poor in the United States. But um, BCCI was really known for getting the favor of the rich and powerful and would like often hire politicians, friends, or family members into positions of power within BCCI. So they cleverly used their own organization to be like, listen, if you look the other way, I'll get your son a job or that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. So shortly after this, 15 investors from the Swana region purchased a bank called Fed, uh, Financial General Bank Shares, which was a large banking holding company in Washington, D.C., but again, they were essentially a front for BCCI to purchase their way into American banking. So they, they succeeded in that, and so they had their foothold in a few areas of American banking at this point. But in October of 1985, BCCI suffered over $440 million in losses wow. from options trading, which I don't really know what that is. Mm, yeah, that's, but that's that world I don't know again. Yes, stocks and all of that don't make a lot of sense to me. Uh, but essentially, this kind of sounds like the beginning of the end to me is when they suffered this huge, huge financial loss. Mm -hmm. um, because one of the articles that I read stated that as BCCI's losses grew, so did the, their like fraud that they were engaging in to try to cover it up. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that BCCI was doing, by the way, this story is going to get wild. So just buckle up. Wow. So BCCI had this huge loss, and one of the things that they started to do was take investments and deposits and use them to cover their operational costs and their losses rather than investing it. So just a, you know, FYI, essentially that's a problem because you're kind of stealing from your future self because right. you should be investing it so that you can give that money back to the people who invested with you. Yeah. <laughs> but you're spending it and not earning interest on it. So, wow. Um, side note, in 1988, Abedi had a heart attack and he had a heart transplant. He survived, but he gave control of BCCI to his second in command, whose name was Swale Nakvi. Okay. And Abedi would later die in 1995, but there's a lot more to this story that happens in the meantime. Mm, okay. Um, so BCCI's two holding companies, as I mentioned, were in Luxembourg and the Cayman Islands. And you might have like heard the Cayman Islands as a kind of uh, place that people hide money. Yeah, easily. that's exactly so, what I was thinking. Luxembourg yes. too. Yes. So Luxembourg and, and the Cayman Islands were both known for having really lax banking regulation. And so having their holding companies based there was like an intentional choice so that they could exploit the gaps in worldwide banking regulation. I mean, but doesn't that put like a huge spotlight on what you're doing too? You would think. So one of the articles I read said, quote, to fool the whole world, the bank used a well-oiled system of complicated corporate structures. The necessary op operations were divided into parts and sent to various legal entities and countries. No law enforcement system could track them. So essentially they were exploiting kind of like gaps in jurisdiction and in law and in financial regulation to kind of be able to grow really fast and, and run their bank the way they wanted to. That feels like people had a very deep knowledge of how things are like investigated and looked into and were yes. like incredibly deliberate in everything they did. Yes, 100%. 
So despite these kind of like lack of controls and oversight, BCCI was subject to annual audits. And at one point, it apparently used two different companies for its auditing, which is apparently odd. Most banks only use one uh, organization for their auditing. And so Uh, BCCI was eventually ordered by the Bank of England to use a single auditing firm. So in 1987, Pricewaterhouse became the bank's sole um, accountant auditing firm. In 1990, the Pricewaterhouse audit revealed an unaccountable loss of hundreds of millions of dollars. So this is, again, remember, $440 million five years ago, and then now this audit is showing another unaccountable loss of hundreds of millions. Oh, my God. So... BCCI was basically like, no problem, we got this taken care of. They went to the ruler of the United Arab Emirates, um, and he just said, sure, I'll cover the loss of hundreds of million dollars in exchange for 78% of ownership in BCCI. Imagine being so rich that you can just be like, yeah, 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 take hundreds of millions of dollars. That's fine. Uh, I I, want to pass out. It's unreal. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. So the audit also revealed other irregularities, including that BCCI had made $1.48 billion worth of loans to its own shareholders, and the collateral for those loans was their own BCCI stock, which is not appropriate because by having their clients use the BCCI stock as the collateral for their loans, when their clients didn't make their payments, BCCI was able to take their stock And so they ended up ultimately owning, remember they had like bought their way into these American banks. This was one of the ways that they increased their percentage shares of these other banks because they were able to take the stock from people who didn't pay their loans. Okay. The audit further revealed that many of the investors had borrowed funds from BCCI, which uh, confirmed people's suspicions for a year that this first American bank that had been purchased by like the 15 men from the Swana region was actually being owned and operated by BCCI and that it was a secret and illegal operation of First American Bank. So the report stated that they had received, (laughs) in order to accomplish this, the report stated that they had received, quote, the illegal support of American politicians, allowing Abedi to become a secret owner of the influential bank First American. So the audit also revealed that BCCI had made significant unsecured loans to a number of individuals, over $500 million to property tycoon Nazmu Virani, and $1.2 billion in unsecured loans to the Gokul family, which is a family that owns like a really big international shipping business. What? Um, (laughs) So typically, you know, an unsecured loan... Doesn't really happen, but let alone for $500 million, $1.2 billion, etc. Wow. And by the way, according to standard banking practice, a bank is not supposed to loan more than 10% of their capital to a single individual, but they had loaned three times their bank's capital to <sighs> the Gokul family and to Nazmu uh, Virani. Wow. So... While all of this was happening, BCCI was facing a lot of scrutiny by the U.S. government, and they decided to investigate BCCI for improper operations. In 1986, a U.S. Customs undercover operation led by Special Agent Robert Mazur infiltrated BCCI's private client division in Tampa, Florida. 
Mazur posed as a corrupt businessman in order to kind of get his way into BCCI. His investigation found that BCCI was actively solicitating, nope, found that BCCI was actively soliciting deposits from arms and drug traffickers and money launderers. Mazur used his undercover role to not only build relationships with the BCCI officials, but also with members of the Medellin, Medellin cartel, which is Pablo Escobar's cartel, cartel mm-hmm. <laughs> which at its height was the largest drug cartel in the world Yeesh. and smuggled more than three times as much cocaine as their main competitor. So BCCI was essentially in bed with the largest drug cartel in the world. Wow. That cartel, by the way, generated over $20 billion a year. And of course, a lot of that was going through BCCI. And this was discovered from an undercover operation? Correct. Can you imagine being that undercover operator? man. And that's no. the world See, you have to engross yourself in for however long to be believable? And that's where you're living? I'm even nervous, like, saying these things on our podcast in the hopes that I don't end up, like, dead by right. the cartel, uh, uh, let alone being the investigator who, like, takes them all down. No, this is exactly what I was talking about when we were talking about the podcasts that investigate on, like... Real, like, live cases. Yeah, that that yeah. is where I... That's far beyond where I draw the line. <laughs> For sure, Yes. So, um, so if Matt or I end up dead in the near future, um, please take a look at the people that I mentioned in this episode. Yeah, and then subscribe, so, subscribe to our Patreon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure we'll need uh, funds to help with, with arrangements. <laughs> yes. So um, BCCI also had extensive banking networks in Colombia, which was the main area of production for the Medellin cartel. And the banks that they ran in Colombia had a reputation for, like, asking no questions and dealing in a lot of cash, which, of course, makes it kind of the perfect banking operation for any sort of illegal operation. So, Mazur, the uh, the investigator, his investigation was a two-year undercover operation, and it concluded in 1988 with a fake wedding attended by BCCI officers and drug dealers from around the world that Mazur had established relationships with. But the wedding was actually an elaborate takedown operation, which led to more than 80 men and women being charged worldwide and BCCI facing U.S. charges for money laundering. Wow. As part of this takedown, six current and former BCCI employees were convicted of conspiring to launder $32 million in cocaine money. In 2016, a movie based on the undercover operation called The Infiltrators premiered, and it starred Brian Cranston of Breaking Bad fame. How funny. I know. I was I tried to watch it, but I was really busy this week, and I didn't have time. Mm. So after that takedown, BCCI as an organization was implicated for their significant involvement in the money laundering scheme, and they faced a six-month trial as a result. The U.S. government kind of pressured them to just plead guilty, which they ultimately did in 1990 as part of a plea agreement. So as part of that plea agreement, four bank officers were convicted, and the bank was to pay $15 million in fines and um, only admit that it had laundered drug money. So that was kind of the extent of the punishment was $15 million in fines and admitting that they had laundered drug money. That's so insignificant 
when you look at how much money they played with. Yes, the billions, wow. yes. So, but this kind of like forced BCCI out of the United States. And in the press, BCCI garnered the nickname, the Bank of Crooks and Criminals. <laughs> Clever little play on the acronym. Mm. All right. But it gets even more wild. So in an internal Bank of England memo, and Bank of England was affiliated with BCCI for a while, um, they described BCCI as, quote, on its way to becoming the financial equivalent of the SS Titanic. <laughs> and in March of 91, the Bank of England asked Pricewaterhouse, the auditing firm, to form a task force and conduct a secret investigation into BCCI. And this operation was called Sandstorm. <laughs> the report um, out of their secret investigation was called the Sandstorm Report, and it showed that BCCI had engaged in, quote, widespread fraud and manipulation, which made it difficult, if not impossible, to fully investigate their financial history. So the corruption and the fraud was so intense and widespread that they were like, how do we even begin to piece this back together? So according to the Sandstorm Report, economic problems in the early 1980s significantly impacted BCCI's business. And in the report, Pricewaterhouse described BCCI as, quote, probably one of the most complex deceptions in banking history. I mean, it sounds like it. Yeah. The report lists countless illegal and inappropriate activities by BCCI, including misappropriation of deposits without depositors' knowledge, generation of loans with no collateral, generating a substantial amount of fictitious income to enhance reported profits, and routing funds through multiple organizations to make adjustments prior to audits. And then after the audit, the funds would be transferred back. So essentially, like, when they knew they were being audited, they would move a bunch of money around to make everything make sense, and then they would move it all back after the audit was over. <laughs> wow. So the report also found that BCCI had provided bank accounts under fictitious names for the terrorist Abu Nidal organization— Oh. This organization was responsible for ordering attacks in more than 20 countries, killing over 300 people and injuring 650 others. Great. <laughs> the person who linked BCCI to the Abu Nidal uh, terrorist organization, his name was Samir Najmadeen, and he was given millions of dollars worth of credit for arms deals with Iraq. So <laughs> BCCI was also helping to smuggle arms into Iraq. Wow, they really just got their hands and everything. Well, I'm not even done. Brace yourself. Oh. So, another BCCI agent was a Pakistani general named Fazle Haq, who smuggled U.S. supplies through Pakistan into Afghanistan, which at the time we supported because the Soviet Union had invaded Afghanistan in 1979, and we were so wrapped up in the Cold War that we were like, we can't allow the Soviet Union to gain any more power, so we started giving guns to Afghanistan to fight off the Soviets, which ended up, you know, blowing up in our faces not too long after that, as we decided that we were now against Afghanistan. <laughs> so BCCI was also connected to the de facto ruler of Panama, Manuel Noriega, who was an authoritarian ruler and in the 1950s, Noriega became the U.S.'s main conduit for the uh, shipping of weapon, weapons, military equipment, and cash for U.S.-backed forces throughout Latin America. Hmm. So we were... <laughs> BCCI was connected to Manuel, Manuel Noriega, who was our connection for, like, 
again, doing covert international operations throughout Latin America. Of course, until we decided to invade Panama in 1989 to kill Manuel Noriega. Mm. So, (laughs) which is a lot of this story, by the way, is like, we're giving all of this money to this country or this person. And then like 10 years later, we decide that they should be dead. (laughs) Unreal. So in this investigation, this is still the Sandstorm Report. It, they found that BCCI also supported Saddam Hussein's dictatorship, helping him to skim money from national revenues and move and hide money all over the world. Of course. During the investigation, one BCCI officer was quoted as saying, quote, I could tell you what you want to know, but I must worry about my wife and family. They could be killed. And a U.S. A US investigator stated, we better not talk about this over the phone. We've, we've found some bugs in offices that haven't been put there by law enforcement. So even the investigators were like really nervous to t- tell anyone anything about this BCCI because people were uh, in danger. Yeah. So this inquiry, um, the Sandstorm Report, resulted in Deloitte & Touche, who is another uh, kind of like financial auditing firm, suing the Bank of England, essentially alleging that the federal regulators of England had acted with malicious recklessness, that's a direct quote, in not shutting down BCCI years before. So they were saying, like, you have fucked over a lot of people, you saw red flags years ago, and you didn't close them down. So this lawsuit (laughs) lasted for 12 years. And this blew my mind. This lawsuit also included a notable 119-day speech by one person. What? Which is the longest speech in legal history. Uh, I know. Do we do we sleep? Um, were there? <laughs> I'm assuming food they breaks? slept every day and they just came back and kept talking. How many meals did did they talk with their mouth full? Did they <laughs> did they have a uh, were there coughing fits? Was there hiccups when Probably drinking a, all a of the fizzy above. beverage? What? What? <laughs> so this lawsuit, which lasted for 12 years, eventually <laughs> Deloitte and Touche just gave up and withdrew the lawsuit because essentially they were like, this has taken too long. It's no longer worth suing the Bank of England to get any money we're just giving up. So they just walked away from the lawsuit after 12 years. Yeah, because probably after the that speech, there was like an, a 10-year speech. Probably. And they were like, we have to pee. <laughs> <laughs> so the Abedi's planned structure for BCCI was intentionally structured to make things like this happen. So they structured it in such a way that regulators in various countries were able to be like, oh, that's not our thing. That's Luxembourg's thing to deal with. So everybody got to pass the buck which allowed BCCI to get away with a lot of illegal stuff. Mm-hmm. In Senator John Kerry's report on BCCI, he stated, quote, BCCI's unique criminal structure, an elaborate corporate spider web with BCCI found, BCCI's founder, Agha Hassan Abedi, and his assistant, Swale Nakvi, in the middle, was an essential component of its spectacular growth and a guarantee of its eventual collapse. The structure was conceived by Abedi and managed by Nakvi for the specific purpose of evading regulation or control by governments. It functioned to frustrate the full understanding of BCCI's operations by anyone. So when the Sandstorm report was kind of like coming out and uh, or a little bit into the investigation and before the full report came out, BCCI, meanwhile, not knowing that this was happening, 
was attempting to restructure their organization and like rebrand themselves under a new name because they had, you know, they had been convicted of a few things <laughs> over the years and right. their reputation wasn't great. So they were like, let's rebrand. <laughs> But the Sandstorm report proved that BCCI had so many, and this is, again, direct language, fundamental problems that it had to be liquidated. Their fraud was so massive that the uh, Sandstorm report said that BCCI, as an organization, cannot be reformed and it must be shut down. I mean, there you go. So in July of 91, regulators convinced a judge in Luxembourg to force the shutdown of BCCI and to liquidate their assets. And at 1 p.m. that day, regulators went into the BCCI London offices and shut them down. Wow. Two days later, the Hong Kong Commissioner of Banking ordered BCCI shut down in Hong Kong, and it was liquidated 10 days later. On July 29th, a Manhattan grand jury indicted BCCI, Abedi, and Swale Nakfi on 12 counts of fraud, money laundering, and larceny. Manhattan District Attorney, um, whose name I did not write down, described BCCI as the largest bank fraud in world financial history. Four months later, in November of 1991, BCCI, Abedi, and Nakvi were indicted on federal charges that they had illegally bought control of another American bank. So remember, I talked about the one that they had like, gotten yeah. before. This, in, this investigation uncovered others. So they had bought control of the Independence Bank of Los Angeles and were essentially using a um, businessman as their puppet owner. That guy was also the puppet owner of another bank in Florida. So BCCI had mult had their hands in multiple US banks illegally and were using people as sort of like front people so that they could control it without, you know, garnering attention. Wow. So after they pled guilty to all of these charges, they were forced to pay $10 million in fines and forfeit $550 million of assets to the US government which today is still the largest single criminal forfeiture in U.S. history. Wow. There's a lot of biggest, first, longest in this story. <laughs> it sounds like it. So both First American and Independence Bank were subsequently liquidated as well. And in the U.S. investigations, they uncovered that uh, a man named Robert Altman, who was a lawyer, was the puppet owner for First American Bank. And he was connected through a man named Bert Lance, who was chairman of the board for one of the other banks that BCCI was controlling. So they were kind of like the two front men for two of the banks in the U.S. So both of them were running these banks where the strings were being pulled from by BCCI. But Lance, at the time of his involvement with BCCI, was also the director of the Office of Management and Budget for the United States and was helping to run a corrupt bank. Great. Wow. Fun piece of trivia, that guy, Bert Lance, is also the guy who coined the phrase, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Oh. Random trivia. That's fun. So they were later indicted, but or uh, Bert Lance was indicted, but later pardoned by President Jimmy Carter. Hmm. But because there is any, la any um, there's like a lack of kind of like an international forum for liquidating a bank of this size in this many countries, the process of liquidating BCCI took over 20 years. Abedi was never brought to trial in American or UK courts because Pakistani officials refused to extradite him as they believed that the charges against BCCI were politically motivated. Hmm. 
And as I said, he died in 1995, so he didn't really live to face trial anyway. Right. And if you think that I have said some wild things so far, brace yourself. (sighs) Oh my god. So in 2002, former senior members of Financial Clearinghouse um, Clearstream, is the name, discovered that BCCI had continued to maintain its activities after its official closure. So... Through the various investigations of BCCI, investigators found what they would refer to as, quote, the Black Network. The Black Network was a kind of clandestine division of the bank that functioned as a global intelligence operation and had a mafia-like enforcement squad. Oh, God. So the Black Network operated primarily out of BCCI's offices in Pakistan and involved more than 1,500 BCCI employees. They used sophisticated spy techniques and equipment. They engaged in bribery, extortion, kidnapping, human trafficking, and murder to further BCCI's goal to be the most powerful bank in the world. And even though the Black Network was kind of like this clandestine secret part of the organization, knowledge of their operations, like knowledge of their existence and the way that they enforced kind of compliance with BCCI, that knowledge kind of like bubbled to the common knowledge of employees within BCCI. So essentially what the articles I read said were that a lot of BCCI employees were like, I can't say anything to anyone because there's this group of people who could kill me or my family. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So an informant named codenamed Mustafa by Time magazine stated that when BCCI found that one of their officers in Karachi had like planned to liquidate his assets and like get out of BCCI because he didn't want to be part of these like shady dealings. He says, quote, first they killed his brother and then they sent brigands to rape his wife. He fled to the U.S. where he is still hiding. So I mentioned some of BCCI's connections earlier, but the Black Network of BCCI has been connected to a number of other pretty problematic political figures, including Ferdinand and Imelda Marcos, who stole billions from the Filipino people, Daniel Ortega, who was president of Nicaragua, President of Peru, Alan Garcia, who later died by suicide when police attempted to arrest him for his financial misconduct. Liberian ruler Samuel Doe, who is reported to have run a totalitarian government. And arms dealer Adnan Khashoggi, who uh, was a big part of the weapons trade into Iraq and Iran. Oh, wow. Wow, wow, wow. The original purpose of the Black Network was to pay bribes and intimidate authorities and to, like, quash investigations. But according to the investigations, at some point in the 1980s, the Black Network just decided to also begin running its own drugs, weapons, and currency deals. Informant Mustafa stated that, quote, we would put money in the accounts of people we wanted to seduce to work for us, or we would use terror tactics. The Pakistanis were easy to terrorize. Perhaps we might send someone his brother's hand with the ring still on it. We were after business cooperation or military or industrial secrets that we would use or broker, and we targeted generals, businessmen, and politicians. In America, it was easy. Money almost always worked, and we sought out politicians known to be corruptible. I'm sure that wasn't hard. (laughs) So, nope, and here's where I'm going to talk about some of that. So U.S. Commissioner of Customs told the Kerry Committee, who was investigating a number of kind of international policies and practices that alleged um, that were kind of like looking into financial corruption, 
They found that the CIA had several accounts with BCCI, as did our National Security Council. These accounts were used to fund a variety of covert operations around the globe, including transfers of money and weapons during the Iran-Contra affair under the Reagan administration. (sighs) When BCCI was indicted for money laundering, U.S. Senator Orrin Hatch gave an impassioned speech to the Senate on their behalf, and coincidentally... Hatch happened to be in the midst of securing a $10 million loan with BCCI for his close friend, Manzer Horani, who was involved in a number of controversies over the years with Senator Hatch, including laundering campaign contributions for Senator Hatch, which led to a Senate Ethics Committee investigation and resulted in him being fined $10,000. Not enough. No. Hatch, by the way... If you look at a picture of him, he looks like he hatched from the same brood of demonic spawn as Mitch McConnell. And just because I can't handle how awful this man was, I just need to say that Senator Orrin Hatch opposed women's right to choose, supported the expansion of international armed anti-terror policing, opposed energy reform, opposed healthcare reform, supported harsher immigration laws, opposed citizen rights against governmental surveillance, opposed marriage equality, and was once quoted as saying, I wouldn't want to see homosexuals teaching school any more than I'd want to see members of the American Nazi Party teaching school. Oh, my goodness. This piece of absolute human garbage thankfully died in 2019. May he rot in pieces. See you later. See you never. So I share that because this story that I've been telling so far like heavily features the corruption of an international industry and various countries' involvement in that, and I want to be clear that our country does not have clean hands in this by any means. Mm. Including one of the, I, I couldn't read the entire book, but there was a book about this that I read sections of, and the, the, the beginning of the book starts very interestingly where they're like, here's the cast of characters that you're going to meet in this story about BCCI. And so they describe Jimmy Carter as the 39th president of the United States who accepted millions of dollars from Abetti and BCCI. Richard Kerr, CIA director, who in 1991 confirmed that the agency had used BCCI money to move around the world. And (laughs) then there was one person that they just literally described as flamboyant BCCI frontman. And I was like, what does that mean? Why are we describing one person as flamboyant? Anyway, according to one of the investigations, quote, in one of the most mysterious events in the case, BCCI Bank, uh, BCCI Bank records from Panama City relating to Noriega, remember we were uh, affiliated with Manuel Noriega for a Mm -hmm. while, those records, quote, disappeared in transit to Washington while under guard by the Drug Enforcement Administration. After an internal investigation, the DEA said it had no idea what happened to the documents. Isn't that a just remarkable coincidence? Of course. Ready? There's more. A man named Gaith Faroen, who is a Saudi financier and a client of BCCI, said in April that his bank and others were involved in money laundering, but, quote, everyone launders drug money, everyone is a criminal, but only the Arab bank is attacked. So he is claiming that, like, you're attacking BCCI when all of these other banks around the world are doing the exact same thing. Hmm. And Agent Mazur, the guy who did the the wedding takedown, he said that he was 100% sure that other banks were doing what BCCI was doing at the same time, stating, quote, many other banks launder money and still do. I mean, I think it's believable. Oh, for sure. So 
one of the articles I read had this great quote that said, the lessons of BCCI's collapse should have been clear. When the United States beefed up regulatory oversight in the banking sector in the decade following, which uh, shell banks could no longer operate in the United States, the tools that BCCI utilized are still firmly in place. U.S. states still produce hundreds of thousands of anonymous shell companies every year. The United States still allows anonymous real estate purchases across almost all of the country. And the lawyers and PR specialists and auditors are still free to work on behalf of any clients they'd like without any legal requirements that they check whether or not the source of their client's income stems from transnational money laundering operations. Ooh. By the way, I, I've only vaguely up until this point known what a shell corporation is, but yeah. essentially it's I was going to say there a are a lot of big words in there that I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> so a shell corporation essentially is a corporation that has no active business operations or assets. It's... It's not illegal in and of itself, but they're used illegitimately a lot of the times to disguise who owns a business from law enforcement or the public. And legitimate reasons for shell corporations include things like using a, uh, starting a startup in the business entity as like a vehicle to raise funds or, or conduct a hostile takeover or to go public. So there are legitimate reasons, but it's also heavily used for improper activities. Mm, okay. And it, one of the things that it really allows is it allows people to hide their personal income through the shell company, preventing higher rates of personal taxation. So like Jeff Bezos, for example, could funnel a ton of money through his sh shell company so that he doesn't have to pay personal taxes on it, hmm. for example. Okay, I'm, I'm approaching the end of the story. So... Investigative journalist Joseph Trento claims that BCCI's formation and operation was orchestrated by the head of Saudi intelligence and was designed to finance American intelligence operations. So essentially, some people still believe that BCCI was never really intended to be a legitimate bank, but was instead kind of like founded and grown as a way to further various countries' intelligence operations, which seems very plausible to me based on how many countries had their hands in this. Yeah, I mean, that, that has to be at least one of the main purposes of it, if not the only. Yes, definitely. And so in 2012, the official liquidation was finally, like, finished, which occurred 21 years after it was ordered. And although major litigation has ended in the case, suits and legal actions relating to the bank were still being brought in 2013, over 20 years after the bank's failure. Estimates of losses due to the BCCI scandal range from $10 billion to $17 billion. Oh my god. $2 billion of that loss alone was from the ruler of the Arab Emirates, the United Arab Emirates. So remember earlier where we, he like just gave them $450 million? Now he has lost $2 billion and still is like one of the most wealthy people in the world. Unnecessary. Imagine that much money. No. <laughs> so many also point to BCCI, BCCI as an example of why the world's bank regulatory systems need overhaul because their ability to exploit gaps in financial regulation laws really allowed this to happen. And I just want to conclude with what I think is kind of like the perfect wrap-up quote from John Kerry's report to the Foreign Relations Committee. So he states... BCCI criminality included fraud by BCCI and BCCI customers involving billions of dollars, money laundering in Europe, Africa, Asia, and the Americas, BCCI's bribery of officials in most of these locations, support of terrorism, 
arms trafficking, and the sale of nuclear technologies, management of prostitution, the commission and facilitation of income tax evasion, smuggling, illegal immigration, and illicit purchases of banks and real estate, and a panoply of financial crimes limited only by the imagination of its officers and customers. And that is the story of the BCCI banking scandal that inspired today's episode. Oh, that's all? (laughs) (laughs) Is that not wild? I don't even, like, what is the purpose of that amount of money for any, anything? That's what I don't understand, frankly. I don't know. Like, oh my god, wow. Like, if you have enough money to just give away $450 million or, like, take a loss of $2 billion and you don't even blink, why do you need more? Why do you exist? And also... Why, <laughs> like, also that. Billionaires should not exist. Right, and why do you... I, I'm sorry, if a bank that was formed by someone who, like, created it himself in his youth could be so powerful and yeah. so untraceable for so long... How could we not believe that so many other banks are doing the same thing, led by people oh, yeah. who have had this experience for, you know, it's probably not, they didn't get the idea themselves. They probably got no. people who were involved in other banks and other things who had experience yes. doing this all involved. So that's for scary sure. that that, oh my God. Yeah. Let's just get rid of so, money. <laughs> hopefully we don't end up dead after this episode, but Ooh, it's been wood. a great two seasons if we do. Right? What a way to go. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, should we uh, rate the episode? Yeah, let's rate the episode. What would you rate it for watchability? Oh, gosh. D plus. Yeah, I would agree with the D range. It's not great. It was not a great episode. Yeah, I got through it, funny, but it wasn't, it wasn't I the f- best. <laughs> I feel like they did this in the first season, too. Like, the, the last episode was all about, like, financial political corruption and it it's just makes for a really unwatchable final episode <laughs> it's it doesn't have the same effect you know no as yes. like something more personal when you're just talking about money yes. moving around yes somebody exactly. died in the episode but it was really more about you know i don't the think money. we ever even saw his face no i don't just think so with the bullet in the head yep um how about how it dealt with it i think it did a a decent job of tying in elements of the actual crime and then just making it extremely smaller scale. Yeah. And like local. Yeah, for sure. Um, Yeah. I'll give it like a a C plus. I'll give it a B minus. I don't think it did too bad. And I feel like that might be the first time I've ever given a higher rating than you. It might be, especially for the the crime portion. Yeah. Well, look at us. Growth. Growth. Well, listeners, I just wanted to announce, since this is the season finale of season two, we will be taking the rest of August off in between, and we'll be returning with season three on September 9th, so get ready for that, and in the meantime, check out our Patreon, because we'll have content on there, and go through our back catalog and catch up. That's right. If you haven't listened to old episodes, go back and do that. Yeah. Our humble beginnings. (laughs) Our humble beginnings. (laughs) And hey, if you enjoyed listening to this and would like to show your gratitude, we would love it if you would write us a review and subscribe to our podcast. And most people try a podcast because a friend recommends it. So if you're enjoying our show, please tell a friend. 
Our social media is Ripped Headlines on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Our email is RippedHeadlinesPod at gmail.com. <laughs> we love getting email from you, so send us one to say hi. <laughs> if you'd like to learn more about us and find information about our show, newsletters, merch, and our new Patreon, which is now available, check out our website at RippedHeadlinesPod.com. Yes, and also a percentage of our Patreon proceeds get donated to the Equal Justice Initiative, so by supporting us, you're also supporting positive change in the world. Thank you so much for listening to Rip From the Headlines, where you get the facts and some fiction. We will see you in in four weeks. (laughs) And until then, stay out of the headlines. Bye.